0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. This time, it's going to be the band The Flowers of Hell, because I recently spoke to Greg Jarvis to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff um and they have got various things happening i do believe they're going to be supporting the wedding present very soon but um, i should give you more details i will at the end of this show um but anyway after quite a long chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years all the chat just had to get edited out but my god it was quality chat anyway greg tell us about your life in detail take it away
1: i think for me You know, I mean, I grew up in Canada and I was born in 71. So with Canada, it's so different to the UK. We didn't have a top of the pops. We didn't have an NME. We didn't have a melody maker. We didn't even have a real smash hits kind of thing. So we never had that kind of teen awareness culture that the UK had. And so for me, it was more, I just remember being 15 and, being more inclined to explore what all music was out there and listening to the radio a bit, and nothing really resonating with me. And then a friend, you know, this would have been '87, back when computers still ran on cassettes. And I'm at a party, a friend had a cassette tape that he copied a Skinny Puppy album onto. And just hearing Smothered Hope by Skinny Puppy, I was like, Yes, that is how I feel. And then that led me into finding The Pistols and The Clash. And even though it was '87, I was totally into The Clash and The Pistols was fully into them in the months after that and then that just led me to much more
0: yes and what your um, and your parents did you have a kind of a musical household at all or any older brothers or sisters who turned you on to any kind of musical awakening oh
1: my brother just a non-music person my father a non-music person he's british and he was only ever into shirley bassey and that's about it rarely ever put a record on but my mother completely into 50s rock and roll up to phil specter and including phil specter so i grew although i was growing up in the 70s everything I was hearing was from 56 to 64. so i ended up kind of with the same influences that so many of the musicians i loved from the 70s had and from the 60s I had who who'd also grown up hearing that stuff
0: Yes, because it's interesting because David Bowie and Lemmy used to always say their first musical awakening or their kind of moment was Little Richard. And then they would say Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly. So there was kind of definitely, I think, you know, that that the music you listen to when you're 16, 18 has such a sort of strong impact for the rest of your life. And you can't, you can't be that age again. You can't have that kind of mentality and naivety and innocence and enthusiasm just to play that music all the time. Which is always, well, quite, yeah. and quite... as much
1: as I try to get, get hip hop, I just don't get it. It's just my musical ground zero is fifties rock and roll. That's what my brain's programmed to. And so hip hop, it, it just doesn't gel with my soul.
0: <laughs> no, I obviously because we, you know, I sort of grew up. I suppose I was, very, you know, apart from the seventies period, but I was quite young. But it was kind of the eighties that I was obsessed with, and I suppose it was the awakening of the Smiths from eighty three. To 87 you know the Smiths played this massive part but also we had you know three music pa- weekly music papers like the NME, Sounds and Melody Maker so you know you kind of went for one of those ones probably I mean some people might have bought two but I only bought one but it was John Peel. John Peel was the person who introduced us to all this music and because he was the gatekeeper and I trusted him you know I just kind of went through anything that he played so it was like all the sort of the rock, the pop, the indie stuff but he did sort of introduce me to the world of you know, African music like the Bundu Boys and the Four Brothers and Thomas McFumo and the Black Sun Limited. And then, you know, there was hip hop because I remember him playing, you know, Public Enemy and then LL Cool J and Roxanne Shantae and all these kind of people. So I kind of, you know, I was kind of curious at that time to listen to it all. And, um, but yes, that that was kind of a massive period of my life, I suppose. So, um, but you're, you're sort of, it was kind of the late 80s for you, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah, it was getting into British 77 punk in the late 80s. And then, you know, a few of the late 80s bands, like the first gig I ever properly went to that really loved was the Pogues in 88 on the If I Should Fall From Grace With God tour. And then that, I mean, part of the group I do today, one of the reasons we've got, you know, always eight people on stage was because that's what I first saw. It wasn't guitar, bass and drums. It met with this idea that, Reading about punk had always planted in my brain, reading about British punk of the 70s anyhow, about to always try to do something new, something original, something that hadn't been done in music. And seeing the pogues with that and their instruments and the attitude, it was just like, yes, this is this yes. the
0: idea. I do, I do remember seeing them sort of supporting Elvis Costello in I think 83. And that was like, oh, this is, I, I can't remember what the album was. It had Sally McLaland on, and um, it was just a bit like, yeah. It was a classic. And then, you know, that, you know, the album you just mentioned, If I Should Fall from Grace with God, that's just such a classic as well. So, um, yes. But then after that, they became... Oh,
1: yeah, you talked about Rumsotomy and The Lash? And uh, there was Red Roses for me before that. But, yeah, I saw you'd interviewed James Fernley. I'm actually really disappointed. Uh, I'll, you know, I won't be able to make it. But I had tickets for tomorrow night for St. Patrick's Day in Washington, D.C. with Spider Stacy and uh, Cattle Reardon from The Pogues. At uh, the Black Cat, they're doing all the Pogues classics. Yes. and I mean, to me, they're just like musicians on another level. Like, as long as there's an Ireland, there'll be those songs. That there. It's like a whole musical originality of bringing the old legends forward that like just the greatest respect for them.
0: Yes, I saw a little clip on Facebook of that particular concert, or what, or 15 or 20 minutes of, oh, 20 seconds of it. It did look very energetic. So when did you pick up a musical instrument then? When was this kind of breakthrough for you, sort of becoming sort of from a fan to wanted to play music?
1: Well, this was one thing was that um, in Canada in the 80s, there really wasn't a band culture, you know? And so like at my high school in the 80s, I think there were maybe maybe three people who were in bands and that's it. So it just wasn't really out there to do. But then after I went to university, I had a had a roommate who was completely into the Clash. I was completely into the Clash. And so I'd pick up his guitar and fi- I figured out how to play it. And then I lived in Eastern Europe through much of the nineties and I'd play on the underground scene. there. But because I was working at record labels, you know, the artists are people like David Bowie, you know, so you don't ever look at yourself as an artist. But then after I moved to London in 98, that's when I started taking doing my own music much more seriously.
0: Yes. And put Much more
1: focus on it.
0: So you worked, was it for BMG you worked for in Toronto? And then you went to Prague, Moscow and Walsall.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and it was great artists because in Eastern Europe, we had Geffen Records And so Geffen Records was, you know, such a label of the time with Sonic Youth and Nirvana and Beck. And even in terms of hit stuff that I wasn't so into, bands like Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. And although I wasn't so much listening to them, when you get into hang out with Aerosmith and you get into hang out with Slash, you learn a lot. Actually, with Slash, there's another Bowie connection there. I remember going to meet Slash and one of the guys from the label in Prague, he was, you have to ask him about David Bowie being his dad for a bit. I'm like, what? I'm like, dude, that's just rumor. I mean, you remember what the world was like before the internet. But so, you know, after I'd been hanging with Slash for a bit that afternoon, I I brought up, look, this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I promised one of the guys at the office I'd say, I'd ask, he wanted me to ask you about Bowie being your dad for a bit, you know. And Slash was just like, Oh yeah, no, it's totally true. I went to tons of Bowie concerts growing up because my mom was dating Bowie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, I've, I've um, yes, I suspect there was, yeah, I, I've, I did hear that. I kind of remember that story now. Yes, I think there was probably a lot of drugs going on, wasn't there? Never mind. So what is, yeah. you, work, you worked in the world of marketing for the, 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 this company and then you just kind of got shipped around the world.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't so much ship me around as much as I ended up moving around myself. In Canada, I was just, you know, doing photocopies and copying cassettes for them and then i just went traveling and i was traveling into eastern europe when it had just opened up three years before after the fall of communism i'd taken down the addresses for all the record company offices i dropped into the czech one just wanted to meet some checks and get some czech cds and hear some czech music and talk to some czech people about what shows to try to see while i was in town with my backpack and when I went in the office, it turned out everyone was 21 like me, and they were just opening the company that month. And they are like, wow, you have seen a Western record label. You know what we are trying to build. Can you set up the marketing department? And I'm like, three three weeks out of university, I was totally like, hell, for sure. And then <laughs> so the three days I thought I'd be in Prague turned into four years. No and then, uh, yeah, they moved me on to Rush after that, which was just fucking awful. In Prague, people drank every night to celebrate. And in Moscow, in 97, people drank every night to forget. The country was just on its knees, completely crumbling. Pensions hadn't been paid in half a year. The army hadn't been paid in a year. Teachers hadn't been paid. It was just falling apart.
0: My God, how long were you in in Russia, Moscow, for?
1: Fortunately, just six months, because as I looked I was just like, no, it doesn't make sense to open a full-scale record company here, just import some CDs from Germany, because Everyone was just getting taken to the cleaners. The, you know Everything was so mafia around every business, especially the music business. And the music business just attracted the worst type of gangsters. They attracted the real glamor gangsters. They're the ones that go for the glamor killings and whatnot. So we're constantly going to meetings where we had to bring bodyguards and we're getting padded down and they're bugging our fax lines and they're possibly putting bugs on us in the meetings. And there's hidden recording devices in all the rooms know it's just really a bad scene and you know and of course we're getting death threats on the regular there too even though they're not going to kill you it's all the posturing on up so they you know sometimes it just be casual like warner's had a kid like you out here last year he's dead now don't let it happen to you you know or stuff like i think our companies can work together we will tell you what to do and you will do it or maybe you won't then you will go to your office one day there will be some men that they'll put this suggestion to you again. I think you'll do it then. You know, as as a young Canadian, like you don't know how you're meant to react to that stuff, you know. Are you meant to look scared? Is that the proper reaction? Or are you meant to come on back to them? You have a family, you love your family, then you shut the fuck up, right? Or what do you do? So fortunately, we had I had a great Russian by my side who was trying to open the company with me, and him and I we were playing in a rockabilly band together and so he knew how to handle those things you know like neither back down nor be aggressive and so he just respond i do not like the way you are talking to us i think you should stop you know? and so we did have our own mafia protection paid for and they were good guys they would you know they protect us but they wouldn't go out and kill people or break legs for us or any other clients so they were the kind of ethical mafia that we were paying
0: yeah, the good guys, organic and, and sort of eco-friendly. So then, so when you left um, Moscow, where did you go then? Did you come to back to Canada or to... No, so I went
1: briefly to Warsaw, back to Canada for a little bit because the company was paying for me to wrap up a master's. And then it was one of those record company shuffle things and my guy was looking after me and sending me places was gone, so then... That- and I was gone, so I just went to the UK on my own start, and got hired in at Universal to work global marketing for some of their acts, and, and then uh, left them and joined top of the pops for a little bit, and then just got so sick of working with music I didn't like that just went off on my own in London, producing bands, doing some consulting for labels, doing some music trade paper journalism, and really just taking the time to focus on my own music. And then fell into teaching a bit about the music business, which I'm still doing now and love doing that.
0: Yes. So are you currently a professor at the Durham College of Music and Art and Design?
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so I get to teach music history, which is where I really love teaching. And then I've also got to teach all the business side of stuff as well.
0: Right. God, you are busy, aren't you? This is this is quite a tricky narrative. I have to say most most people do the band when they're about 16 to 18 for five years. But. You've really sort of gone around the world, done it that side and Top of the Pops, which is very exciting. So then when do you decide to start a band, The Flowers of Hell?
1: Well, for me, that was one of the reasons I left Top of the Pops and I left nine to five day job work, was I just wanted the time to focus on my own music. And uh, so it really started as just me working out of my London studio in 2002. And then come 2005, I just expanded to a full live band. I'd uh, I'd met Pete Kember, Sonic Boom from Spaceman Three, and uh, he was really into the demos I was working on at the time, and so that just gave me the confidence to really go for it when I had him backing me yeah. up. And then actually through all of this from the '90s on, I had this great mentor in Ivan Kral from the Patti Smith Group. I saw you've had Lenny Kay on the show, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and uh, Ivan, he was Czech originally, so we'd gone to meet in Prague and. And, you know, he was signed to the label we had there in Prague. And so I'd really gotten to know Ivan well. And we, we remained really close throughout his life till he passed away just before the pandemic. But, uh, so he's always been encouraging me to get on with my music.
0: Yes, absolutely. So you obviously had a great passion to sort of start a band at this stage. I mean, rather than sort of go into the academic or the commercial world, even though making music is not normally the most profitable thing in the world, is it? no definitely
1: not and that's what happened for me was once i started doing the lecturing i realized like oh i can lecture a couple of days of the week and it doesn't fully drain me and it leaves me enough time to work on my own music and also with other bands friends bands i wanted to help out like the ecstasy of saint Teresa and groups like that i was able to do that without having to earn a buck off, off them whereas you know at one point when i first gone solo out of top of the pops so i was trying various pop projects to try to make a mega buck overnight to be free to work on my own non-commercial music. But it just never works when you try to make the mega bucks. No, I mean, <laughs> we did like a up with a guy, and we did a, a album of Europop versions of songs from the sound of music, which at the time of the Venga Boys and Aqua, it should have been a mega hit. <laughs> but then we had the problem that Germany, they never had the sound of music movie because of the end bit, the last hour is all about fleeing from the Nazis, which in 65, the Germans did not want to put that out in their cinemas, right? So it turned out there's no cultural history of it there. And Radio One wouldn't play our Europop record unless it was already charting in Germany. So Hitler screwed up my hit record. Yeah, I started teaching and focusing on my space rock instrumental stuff instead.
0: Yes. So, did you? I mean, did you sort of have a flash? Was it a moment that you you had, or was it sort of something that had been germinating away for sort of quite a while when you decided to put the band together and get the name?
1: It had always really been. I've been doing that kind of music, playing live on the underground Eastern European scene in Prague since the nineties. And again, it was more just after Sonic Boom hearing it and getting behind it, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I should go for this. Let me do it live. And um, I would pulled together a band just to play Club AC30 for one night, because this was the other thing. In, in London in 2005, you can get run over playing anything that was rooted in Spaceman 3 or The Mary Chain or anything like that, which seems insane now, given how much they influence so much that came since. But back then, there was just Club AC30 happening once every two months, and Sonic Cathedral happening once every two months. And fortunately, my friends from Prague, the X saint Therese, they played an AC30 night. I met the guys. They heard i have been going up to hang out with Sonic Boom. Because at the time, Sonic was trying to recruit me into Spectrum. And they were like, well, yeah, do you want to play our night? I was sure. So I pulled together a band for the night. And just, you know, when we played, we just felt it was all there. And so we became a band out of having that venue and space to do it in
0: yes and what's your and and sort of you brought out the first album this was in was it 2006 wasn't it which was the um self-titled album actually did you so with the with the lineup with this was it somebody was it a group of people that you'd been working with for quite a while
1: it was all just people i met in different places you know one of them i'd met swapping bootlegs in the spiritualized forum and i just sent him some of the tracks i was working on he dug them i was like hey you ever want someone to play with with you. I'll totally play. Another one was my girlfriend at the time. And again, as I was saying, I tried various projects to earn a buck. She had these massive student debts and she, she could play drums awesome. I could play guitar. And whenever we played together, it just really gelled. So the white stripes were the biggest thing in England at the time. So we somehow after some weed and beer decided, why don't we do the Red Stripes and we'll do reggae versions of White Stripes songs. We'll hit up Red Stripe with a marketing proposal, try to get 10 grand out of them and just do it for a couple months. Instead, Red Stripe threatened to sue us, but the face got totally into us as did these peripheral members of bands like Terry Chimes from The Clash was totally into it, Ed Tudor poll we were booked with, Ed was totally into it. And Simon LeBon from Duran Duran was in. So we ended up signing to Universal Imprint, like fucking playing in a medieval fortress in Serbia with the Whalers and Iggy and the Stooges. And just it was an insane little ride that went on. And Peel even got into at one point. But then it was taking so much time. We just killed it so we could focus on our bands. My band, The Flowers of Hell, with her on drums and her band, The Priscilla's.
0: Uh, yes, Blimey. That's yeah. that's that's quite an amazing, bit. So John Peel was was one of your early champions here.
1: Well, with the Red Stripes, yeah. Though unfortunately, Peel was gone before we had the first Flowers of Hell stuff recorded.
0: That was he passed
1: a... in between. I and then there that... was this great this Abby Fry, who I'd met because I'd got Ecstasy of Saint Teresa working with British Sea Power, and she was starting to work with British Sea Power, and ever since British Sea Power has been her day job from two thousand five till now. And, you know, she was up for the Mercury Prize with them, got a BAFTA with them earlier this year. They were number four in the charts a few weeks ago with the new record. And she was also in Bat for Lashes for a bit too when Bat for Lashes was starting.
0: Yes, and you also worked, this was produced by the one and only Tim Holmes as well, wasn't it? So you'd obviously, you've got a very good ability to network and and sort of bring in a lot of people to collaborate with your vision, haven't you? Yeah,
1: I've really been lucky in that way. Again, it's always been people like Pete Kember and Ivan Kroll kind of helped open a lot of doors for me. And with Tim Holmes, it was he's a huge Spaceman 3 Specialized fan. And so when he heard that Sonic was going to be involved with the record, he was like, yeah, I completely want to do this. Also, we just got lucky. The Project Death in Vegas had been working on at the time we hit them up. They were working for Oasis and it was just going awful and not well. And so then when they heard these tracks they liked and that Sonic was involved, it was like, yeah, I'll totally do that at the casino rooms. That's why I'm in this is that kind of music, not this kind of crap to deal with. So yeah, it was kind of one of those things of hitting them up at the right time.
0: Yes, absolutely. And when the album came out, did you get a good reception? I mean, did it sort of pick up some traction? Well,
1: this was the thing. It was first released in November 2006. It was on Earworm which is a great little label. And, you know, they put out stuff by Apples and Stereo. They put out some Spaceman 3 stuff. They put out some Galaxy 500 related projects and really credible little label. Um, and, you know, we had this great launch at the Notting Hill Arts Club in London that, you know, Sonic Boom DJed out and that. And, you know, I splashed out and hired someone to do publicity on the thing. And it just got like maybe two reviews and that was it. And um, so the band kind of broke up in the months after that. But then come the first week of January of 2007, the publicist guy really felt he failed the record for a given how extraordinary he thought it was. And so he did something that he never does. And he just sent out the press release again with a new release date written on it and just really got that first week of January lull where journalists weren't getting hit up much. And sure enough, that month, we appeared in pretty much every British newspaper with some kind of review. So all the band came back. We're like, yeah, actually, let's keep on going. (laughs) And we've kept on going ever since. But so, you know, that kind of thud of an initial reception, it really nearly killed us. And then getting that validation that I think all musicians really need because you just feel like an asshole trying to believe in your own work. And even when you've got guys like Tim Holmes and Sonic Boom going, no, no, it's good, really, it's good. It's hard to believe in your own work without that external validation.
0: Yes, well, it's an amazing thing to put yourself out there and also create the sound that you wanted. I mean, did that come together as as you want, you know, when you heard it finished? Was it what you sort of always dreamed of?
1: Well, completely. And I think that was also one thing with it was because I had such a background in doing commercial music business stuff that when it came to doing my own record, I, I didn't think about commerciality in one single sense. It was never to be something to earn money off. Uh, it was never something to be marketed. Instead, it was just making a pure expression of our souls. And so I think that's why that record could still lasted. And in fact, we're reissuing it next month on vinyl for the first time. And I've heard the test pressings are right, just so amazing now to hear it on wax, which. Just wasn't a thing in two thousand six, two
0: thousand seven. We yes. had to do
1: a thousand manufacturing run, and so it's just been great getting all packaged up properly and just hearing yeah transferred over to that. So uh,
0: yeah, it's, and what's it's a what's a t- and what's a typical fan? What's a typical fan of the Flowers of Hell? Is it yes? I'm just curious.
1: We get a lot of a lot of Spaceman Three Tangential fans, you know, who are drawn in from that first album. And then, you know, that opens them up to the rest of the stuff we've done as the sounds evolved. I mean, the first album really does draw a lot from the Velvet Underground and Spaceman Three, mixing in more classical strings and classical trumpet with that to take it somewhere further. And then that just kind of expanded over our five albums to the final one in 2016 that we released. It was a full-on symphony with elements of Spaceman Three tucked in. So we kind of went from shoegaze with classical elements to classical shoegaze elements then took some Spaceman 3 fans along that journey.
0: of Yes, because you've yeah, you've done quite a lot of releases. So what was the process when you came up with the the, the famous, you know, the second album? Because having done this show for quite a long time, most bands have, a you know, the five-year narrative. They get together, they have the, you're a bit different on this front, aren't you? Because most people, you know, there's a sort of band of, you know, I don't know, four or five people. They have that 12-month honeymoon period. They eventually get a single, you know, John Peel play it. And then, you know, they get a John Peel session, then the first album thing's going well, they, you know, get in their little transit van, they're touring all the time, and uh, then the second album can be a bit hit and miss, and then the third album is often just about the point where the band has broken up, because there's the tensions within the group and also the complete lack of money, which is quite... Strange. Apart from I did an interview with somebody talking about Suede and they sort of managed to sort of their third album was the one that was the kind of classics and the second album was the one that was a disaster. So they kind of, they're they're the exception to the royal royal, rule. But you, you've obviously got this kind of mass of people that you're always juggling. You must have an amazing, I don't know, contact list of people, mustn't you? You're, You're sort of, yes
1: it's a pretty long roster, but you know, it's, it's kept things going because it's let other people focus on their own own main creative projects. And then when they're free, Hey, they come on and work with me. I think the other thing with the flowers of hell is it's always been a recording project first and a live project second. So where so many bands have focused on the touring and the grind and then the income limitations of all that we, most of our rec is like, it really takes me a year or two of working intensely, you know, in Cubase or whatever to bring them to fruition to achieve what we want to achieve with the zero budget kind of thing that we've never focused on being a big touring band. And that's been our our limitation of why we're not better known is because, yeah, we haven't gone town to town across America playing everywhere. And. Only sporadically do we do it in a few places. Like
0: and do you, do you do any collaborations with any, you know, within within this band? Do you sort of, is there any particular person that you work with to sort of bounce ideas of, or is it mostly yourself sort of orchestrating this kind of like um, The guy
1: in the UK, Steve Head,
0: he's been there since day one. He was the
1: guy I mentioned I met trading bootlegs in the spiritualized forum. And so he's always been my sounding board for all of my ideas from day one. And uh, just been a great contributor to things as as it's gone through the years.
0: Yes. And on this one, you managed to get some notable guests, didn't you? Including um Patty Smith. No, not Patty Smith, you've got Ivan, Ivan Crowl, who was the um the bass player as well. So obviously this is you know Well, yeah, and a lot of people label him as bass player, because that's the typical thinking, one's guitar, the other's bass, but Lenny and Ivan
1: equally swapped bass and guitar. So like a lot of, a lot of actually, the best Patty Smith solos are Ivan crawl, not Lenny K playing. No slight on Lenny, but um, you know Ivan doesn't really get his due for all the guitar stuff. It's actually one thing I've been meaning to approach Lenny on to get a breakdown from Lenny now that Ivan's gone of what did he play, who played what on what, and basically if you hear Les Paul as Ivan and you hear like a Strat is Lenny
0: right yes so what was your thinking on your your third album oh which is the the one track because obviously because um because I have to confess my I grew up I had a brother who was seven years older than me this is in the 70s and he had all the prog rock he was the prog rock person and I used to love you know sort of sneaking into his room his vinyl collection and playing yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Barkley James Halves, the solo work of, you know, Rick Wakeman and all this. So obviously, you know, topographic oceans is one of those ones that I can remember from my childhood. So, um, yes, it's exciting that you two also have a, a quite a collab. you know, a one-minute, a one-track, 40-, 40, 45-minute track. Yeah, that one, you
1: know... The working planet was business suicide. And it it really was. It wasn't what we should have put out then when we were just getting the ear of so many people yet struggling to get on a real label because of the industry collapsing at that point and struggling to get an agent because they see a photo of all of us in the photo and think, oh, there must be like 18 people to tour. That'll never work. Not realizing when we did tour, we'd do it as a seven piece. But with that, we'd crossed Canada on a tour doing 9,000 kilometers from Toronto to Vancouver Island and back. And we were just so tight as a unit after those 9,000 kilometers that I wanted us in the studio immediately when we got back to record. And the only thing I had written at that point was a thing we played at an experimental arts night in Toronto just before going on to it. And so it was all right, let's go in the studio and we'll record. Oh, and it was inspired a lot by Spaceman 3's Dream Weapon. That opened me up to the idea of a song being. You know 40 plus minutes long and again like dream weapon came out of them playing an arts night so it was the same thing where we've been playing an arts night out of that and then we recorded just one take and that was inspired by the whole sister ray thing that lou had given that instruction the velvets that we're only doing one take and so just everyone gave it that extra focus of things and then we did a A lot of, you know, working with the stems in that after that one take, though I don't think we did any overdubs. It was more just chopping out bits here and there and then mixing it in surround sound with a guy named Tom Knott from a great band called The Earlies that I loved at that point.
0: Yes. And in the, in the 90s, we all got very excited with the ECM record label, especially their arty covers. And there was a particular compilation that came out, the Jan Garbrick and the Hilliard Ensemble. Did you also pick up on some of that kind of classical kind of mix kind of vibe that um, became quite sort of excitable in, in that sort of particular decade and, and sort of onwards? I just wondered, because listen to some of your music, you know, occasionally I kept thinking, oh yeah, I must go back and listen to dear old the Hilliard Ensemble and Yang Garbrick again.
1: Yeah, no, for me, it was just about instinctually hitting on that drawing from Dream Weapon and The Velvets and then just using our own timbres instead. I remember it was actually after I'd done the, the performance of Oh for its release in Toronto. I remember after this blogger came up to me and started telling me about all these people like Terry Riley that I never heard of. <laughs> and then in the year following, I, I heard all of them, but O itself was purely just hitting upon similar ideas instinctually as opposed to learning and developing from those that'd done that kind of stuff before.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then on your, your sort of the, the fourth album, you sort of work with the, the plastic people of the universe in Czechoslovakia. So how did this kind of um kind of meeting come about? Well, what it was was for me
1: living in per- in the early 90s, the Velvet Underground were just regarded as the band of the time. You'd be walking through the streets, you'd hear the Velvet Underground coming out of radios and cafes, be in bars, and you'd be hearing them, and you still do that, because it was called the Velvet Revolution, because it was all Velvet Underground fans who led the revolution. Their favorite band, the Plastic People of the Universe under communism, were jailed in 1976, and you know the plastic people they really started out as covering velvets and Zappa stuff and so when they were jailed the regime jailing them it was the thing that united all these factions of distant movements all the poets the playwrights the painters the philosophers they're all like hey hey you can't jail the plastic people you've gone too far <laughs> and so in 77 the playwright vaslav havel he formed the first human rights group beyond behind the iron curtain charter 77 and they waited till their time was right, and in 89, when they saw the Berlin Wall falling, all, all these distant artists who were Plastic People fans and Velvet Underground fans had been g- gathering clandestinely in basements for over a decade. They were like, now is the time. They called the student leaders. They had the revolution. And then they went, oh shit, now we're the government. I didn't want to be the fucking government. I just wanted to get rid of the communists. (laughs) And so slowly over the years of the early 90s, the poets, philosophers, they all left the government, and lawyers and businessmen moved on in. But the coolest thing in the world at that point was the Velvet Underground. And um, for me, my real influence at that time wasn't so much the Velvets themselves, but what was called the Velvet Underground Revival Band, which was the Plastic People, under a different name, doing nights where they just play Velvet Underground covers all night. And honestly, we, I saw the Velvet Underground reformed, and it was dreadful compared to the Plastics doing those songs. And they just lived within the songs the way they would perform them live. So that was my bigger influence than the Bell Underground Records. And so I'd gotten to know them from living there. So when I went to do a covers album, it was just there were some great plastic people songs. I was like, hey, will you sing on this plastic song? And so this Czech legend, Ivo Pospisil, was like, hell, Gregor, for you, yes. People in the West will hear our song. Fantastic. (laughs)
0: <laughs> god that's a fantastic yes I went to um I was at Glastonbury festival and um sort of was walking past the you know the pyramid stage and the velvet gold mine velvet gold mine velvet underground were on and I sort of I watched it for a bit but it wasn't you know it didn't feel quite right you know it was a sunny afternoon and um I don't know I had conjunctivitis in one eye because of the dust because it was a really hot festival and I just thought I just feel a bit like this isn't quite the real thing is it actually? This is just um it's not a cat. Yeah,
1: yeah. it was bad, you know. But with that cover sound when we did the best thing that came out of that, that was that um I, I managed, I ran into Lori Anderson. There were two summers I went out to the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in Boulder to study writing. And one summer that was out there, Lori Anderson was out there for a few days. And so I didn't know she was gonna be there. but I ended up giving her that record in development, I just pretty much finished it. So it wasn't mastered yet, and she loved it when I told her that. Look, we did this one song on it where, you know, we love Oh Superman and we love Heroin and we love that you and Lou are married. So we married the two songs, and she just smiled ear to ear and went. What did you call it? it was what well, we called it Oh Super Heroin? Smiled even wider. Later that night, we had some mat shows, and then when she went home, she played it for Lou, and then Lou kicked off his radio show two weeks later, playing three songs off that album. And, and you know, as if that was enough, then Lou just kept heaping praise on the record, which for me as a musician, it just meant more than a Grammy ever would to get Lou's praise on something I'd done, especially doing some of his own songs.
0: Yes, absolutely. This is This is quite something. And how did you sort of come to the decision of which tracks to include with this kind of your covers album? Because obviously... You know, some lend themselves quite nicely and others seem quite, you know, atmosphere by Joy Division, yes, I can understand. But then you had calling occupants from interplanetary craft, you know, which I, I suppose I know the Carpenters version. And there was also another version which came out in the sort of early 90s with American grunge Band. So, so what, how did that sort of track get included? Well, with
1: that one, it was, I, I first knew it from that Babes in Toyland cover, Yes. That you know, if I were a Carpenter compilation, it was a great compilation, and then it got me listening to the Carpenters, and I was part of that whole cultural reevaluation. We we're growing up in the '70s, and we thought it was just MOR shit. And then you learned about Karen's death, and then you listen to that stuff again, and you hear like, "Oh fuck, Karen Carpenter was a soul singer," you know, no, not some AM pop radio singer. She was a real soul singer, and so that always been there for me. And then I'd heard the original, it's originally by a Canadian prog rock band from the early seventies, Clatoo. And so I'd always liked the song and I tried a couple times to develop covers of over the year. And it just finally, I just had the musical skills to do it because it's just musically incredibly complex the amount of changes that go on in the thing. And so finally I just grown to the point where I felt like oh, I could pull up. But we probably tried about 20 different songs for that covers record did demos of about 20 of them and took 10 to full fruition. Some that we were just doing as cast off, like Atmosphere, we originally weren't going to do on it, but we were just in the studio and we tried it once before. So we're like, let's just try Atmosphere. And then, boom, that ended up being, you know, one of the things that came out the best on the records. Yes. It was a lot of experimenting.
0: And has that been your most popular release so far to date?
1: It's definitely been another great gateway for us. Where, you know, people look up, hey, I love this song. Let me hear some covers of it. And then they find stuff we did on that. And then they find the rest of the things we've done through it. So, you know, originally it was only ever going to be an EP, but we just got really into at that point. And everything else that we've done has been completely instrumental. So we kind of knew we had to do some stuff with It's also I just wanted to do a verse, chorus, verse record just to show that, hey, we can do that when we're doing a... 45 minute song with no lyrics and no <laughs> rhythm it's not because we can't do the other thing yes you know, it's, you know and that was one thing i always learned in the history of avant-garde art you've got to show that you can actually do the art regular for your avant-garde experiments to have any kind of credibility to them so then they know okay you're choosing to do that you're not doing it out of musical limitations and then you know also i've never i've rarely written verse course verse songs just because I've often said, like, even Bob Dylan won't write something better than Mr. Tambourine Man. And so who am I to write a verse, chorus, verse song? And also just think verse, chorus, verse songs, it's, it's done. Like, it's it's an art form that should move forward from all this verse, chorus, verse stuff out there.
0: Yes, it's kind of, it's interesting what you said just a minute ago about, you know, being able to, you need to be able to do something to not do something rather than, you know, it's a bit like you can be experimental, but you need to know how to do the basic things to break it down. You can't just go to break it down without knowing the whole structure. Otherwise, I think you get caught out. I think some artists it feels a bit like there's something not quite right or something slightly not so authentic. You know, it's like, I can do this, but I'm choosing not to, rather than thinking, I'm not doing it because actually I can't do anything. Well, you should if you're a, I don't know, if a painter or a bricklayer, but, you know, any trade, you know, you need to know you can do it. You know, you just sort of, find another way, really. So um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's quite an interest. It's one that I've often thought about, the, the creative process.
1: We've got a great concert promoter in Toronto, Dan Burke, who's a real underground Burroughs-type figure, you know, ex-junkie and really philosophical and also just a tough-ass concert promoter with great music taste. And he's said in conversation to me before that, you know, to break the rules of art, you have to know the rules of art. It's a real kind of Burroughs type statement from the junky underground concert promoter. That's always resonated with me as well phrased.
0: Yes, and also the other thing I thought was brilliant because I was a really big Carpenters fan when I was growing up. I think I was listening to Radio 2 with my mum in the kitchen before I went to school and it was a lot of that kind of soft pop and the Carpenters just had these amazing songs and lyrics and even though I was very young at the time, I still felt very like, I you know those those tracks that have things like I say goodbye to love no one seems to care if I should live or die or you know rainy days on Monday you know and I thought god no wonder I grew to like Joy Division and The Smiths when I sort of was grown up with these kind of lyrics and actually she was the most you know confused and diff you know she had the most horrendous life and and basically you know killed herself in a way and it's and, and when you listen to those lyrics, you kind of think they're not kitsch, are they? They are all really emotional. I know she didn't write them, but, um, you know, she, she sung them with such a sort of passion. And then when you see Karen...
1: I mean, that's why I say she's a soul singer. I mean, Dusty Springfield didn't write her tunes, but man, did she sing them from her soul, right? And then when you add in with Karen Carpenter being an amazing drummer, you know, yes. there's the technique musical skill on top and then on the earliest records it's the wrecking crew playing on them you know it's phil Spector's band on the earliest carpenter stuff so you throw in phil Spector's band and her drumming abilities and think of her as soul and it's a whole different level to mor radio pop
0: yes absolutely so then after after your you know the covers album what then comes next is it the symphony number one
1: yeah Yeah, and um, that, you know, it really was six years in development to do a symphony. And from day one of the band, Steve, how do I mention, was my right hand all the way through. We'd always been dreaming about doing something more classical. And so just over a lot of time, learning a lot of things over six years, I finally just found the ways to do a proper four movement symphony, yet bring in elements of the stuff I like, like Spaceman Three, into it all. And actually just uh, this past month, one of my biggest projects has been working on an actual score for it. Because I conceived it as, as an audio only piece, not really being able to read music or write music or think in that way to score stuff on a staff. But um, we performed a few bits of the symphony at the Moscow Conservatory just before the pandemic at a synesthesia conference there. And um the artistic director at the Moscow Conservatory, he really loved what he saw. And so he was like, look, if you can get me a score for this, then I want to perform it with that orchestra here. And so of course, wrapping up that score, my my inspiration was fuck, my symphony's gonna get a world premiere at the Moscow Conservatory where Chai Povsky taught, Skryabin studied, Rachmaninov, rimsky korsakov all the Russian masters, and then this fucking war has broken out in that time, with all ties to Russia severed, all artistic boycott barriers up, so uh, it looks like there'll be some delay on that, unless there's uh, <laughs> no sort of revolution in Russia happening real soon, because I'm sure you can't program a Canadian piece of music while uh, we're shipping guns to kill the young Russian kids and while the young Russian kids are killing the young UK- Ukrainian kids.
0: Yes, I know. it's It's gone rather bad, hasn't it? This decade has become a little bit more, you know, so, in, you know, just as a side, isn't it? But, you know, you have certain, you know, I can remember the 70s a bit, definitely the 80s, 90s. You know, and each decade you think, you know, it takes a while, a few years or whatever to get a sense of it and you get an idea of what a decade is going to be. But this one, you know, it's it's struggling to get, it's going to have a narrative, but it's struggling to have that identity. When people look back at the fashion, the music, the the feel, I don't know, it's going to be really difficult. You know, it's like, it's going to have a very awkward narrative really, isn't it?
1: I know. As time marches on, it's just the 90s, like, so good. Like, the greatest <laughs> decade ever, especially from where I was in Prague. It was like living in San Francisco in the 60s, but there was no Vietnam. It was just all the good and none of the suck. You know, and, like, I remember... I guess there was a box of stuff I'd had at my mom's place I'd packed up in the 90s that I am during the pandemic and it's wrapped in an alt-weekly alt street newspaper from the 90s. And I'm looking at it and this article is all about what a terrible President Bill Clinton is. And I'm like, oh man, you guys had no idea what's coming. <laughs>
0: Yes, I know. Well, it's interesting, because there's a sort of complacency when things are good. You know, I remember Blur did an album, Modern Life is Rubbish, and everyone's going, oh, there was books, I remember there were those books that come out at Christmas about, you know, everything's rubbish at the moment, you know, it was all, you know, you're thinking, it was like, we had it too easy. So it's like, you start getting a bit like, oh, should we vote for Brexit? Should we vote for Trump? You know, it's all going too well, we need to mess this up. And it's like, a bit too messed up now I think we need a bit more you know the Clinton years and I know John Major we thought John Major was just this kind of very gray politician and then you think God, those (laughs) years were so so good and he gave it to Tony who kind of had a go and had a good start and then messed it up a bit but you know it's like god there was just optimism in the air and everything was cool so um it's very different now isn't it really so then bringing it to the It's very different. So what's what's been the last couple of years been like for you during this kind of lockdown pandemic doing all these different projects? I wondered how you managed to navigate this period.
1: I think at first with it all, well, I mean, for us, it really sucked because, you know, we just played the Moscow Conservatory and then uh, we played the Tate Britain because they put our second album on the wall. It had a Beardsley thing I'd adapted for and they were doing the biggest Beardsley exhibition since the 60s. And so we managed to get in there to play it. like, you know, there's only six albums on the wall, and ours is right next to the Beatles' Revolver and under Procol Harum's debut. So we're like, yeah, 2020, we're going to tour hard this year. And You know, although we've always focused on records, let's focus on live this year. And so we're just gearing up for all that. And then, you know, 10 days after we played the tape, you know, the COVID curtain came on down. So like most, I, I had no nothing coming in, so I didn't have anything to write. But I actually dust, you mentioned our third album, that 45-minute track. I dusted off a second 45-minute track, and I did it by 2017. And although I couldn't write much during the pandemic, and nor could many other people initially, I found sending that track around to all my different players around the world, they were all quite happy to play on someone else's stuff, to have something to bounce off and to riff off. And so that's been my major thing now is this new 45-minute track and uh, i've got some great it's really kind of rooted a lot around harp and sitar i've got risha deer from elephant stone playing sitar on it and uh pete kemba sonic boom he's still to do his little bit on it angel corpus christi she did some great stuff on it and there's probably about 25 people on the thing and so now in these next months i've got to get that wrapped up and then that'll come out though i'll probably release it under a different name, just because I want to kind of cap off the Flowers of Hell discography where it is with five albums. I think you get beyond that and then it just gets harder to get into a band if there's more stuff you have to weed on through. So I think we I, I was trying to find a name, you know, it's also, it's a real mushroom meditation sort of piece. The sax player on it, she's actually a masseuse. So during the pandemic, I'd been going for massages on mushrooms and she'd do her massage to the sax playing on the record, and because I see sounds and also feel sounds outside of my body, just a complete amazing experience. And so, with all the work in progress mixes, that's been my evaluation process on them. So I was trying to find uh, a word that you know fit with this whole thing of like zoning off into music as a way to you know basically meditate, and I found this word on the internet actually made up by some Ukrainians, kashakdaran. And they're just fans of some Ukrainian football team, Shakhtar, but the definition for us, reaching nirvana through meditation to music, especially when you stoned. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> absolutely intentional. So that's the name of the track, the name of the band, and the name of the album.
0: That is fantastic. So you've been sort of doing a, have you always done quite a lot of kind of spiritual exploration in your life? Has that been, has that been something that's always been there with you?
1: Well, I think definitely for me, music and psychedelic drugs, and just that escapism into sound. I think that's always been my main connection to sound. It's just that shutting everything else down and just being there in the sounds. That's uh, you know really always been a big part of my life. Going right back to when I found punk rock as a teenager, wasn't initially going out to shows and bouncing off people, but just coming home from school and putting a cassette on and lying on my bed and just being off in those distorted guitars that echoed and mirrored and morphed with my feelings.
0: Yes. And over the years, have have you sort of tried lots of different sort of substances or different sort of, I don't know, practices or, I don't know. I mean, during the 90s, I was kind of quite into this sort of new age world. And I suppose I still have moments, but there was a lot of kind of, you know, interest in things like Native American Indian, you know, sweat lodges, you know, lots of people smudging each other, everyone talking about their sort of auras and sort of their chakras. And I, I suppose, you know, something that I was you know, curious with and sort of thought about quite a lot. I just wondered what your kind of spiritual journey has been like.
1: But definitely for me with psychedelics, it's never been a party thing. It's always been about select the music in advance and then take the psychedelics and journey off into the sound with that and see where my mind goes and see what i learn from it often with a notepad to capture the thoughts that are coming by me and then seeing what i come back with from that
0: yes and, and do you uh, do this and in fact like the go ahead i was going to say and do you do this on a sort of regular basis or is it something that you sort of wait every six months or every 12 months to do or is it monthly
1: i'd say about every three months and, and, you know, I mean, definitely before mushrooms became easier to get and when it was more acid, then maybe once every six months to a year, because acid, you can only go down that acid trip for so often, right? Um, but I always thought it was such a shame when they outlawed mushrooms in the UK. I remember living in London when you could just go to Camden Market, buy them from the Camden Mushroom Company. You could buy them in shops on Oxford Street. And then just before an election, as a bit of a vote, they remember Tony Blair outlawing mushrooms just before festival season. And so all these kids that would have otherwise taken some nice happy mushrooms were then forced to, you know, not forced, but then led on to having to take acid or a dodgy ecstasy pill, when they could have just taken something that grows in the ground.
0: It would have been so much more. So then, so after your sort of um, rather spiritual sort of massage, What's your plans for the next sort of musical journey then?
1: Well, I think think on the recording side is getting that mushroom meditation piece out. And then with the Flowers of Hell, we all just really wanna play now. Again, we're just gearing up to kind of really go for in 2020 with playing live. And then all this COVID curtain came down. Now the problem we've got is that, you know, the acts with agents are all desperately booking all their acts at the same time. So the venues are all booked up and, Everyone's booked up like six months to a year in advance. So when you're an independent act like us without an agent, it just becomes a real grind. And so after two years of not having to deal with the sending out all the emails and then getting no response and then having to chase as I'm hitting that grind, it just feels like more of a grind. But uh, I think we're really going to try to focus on the festivals that are friendly kind of stuff we do uh, rather than trying to deal with all the club show hassles.
0: And what's the core of the band now with The the Flowers of Hell? The the core, right? Well, one of the great things is since doing the symphony, we've always
1: had a soprano in the group, Danny Friesen. And it's just amazing what these soprano vocals bring to it. And a lot of the trumpet parts, they're now replaced with these soprano vocals. And um, it's just truly brought things to a whole other level musically. And so is that, Typically some organ, sometimes a little bit of flute, guitar, bass and drums, and then the trumpet as well. And if we're playing in Toronto or London, then we'll also have a sax player. out. And, of course, always a violin or a viola. So, you is, it so a, much
0: of, is it a group that you, you know, that are, have played on the record and you can just say, are you going to be free for the next couple of...
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, pretty much everyone playing in the band right now is people who have played with us for years. And, you know, people come and they go. I mean, we've just in the Canadian lineup, we've just had our violists from 2008, 2009 rejoin us in Canada, and so yes. you know, they come and they go and they come on back. But you know, there's always a good history, and especially when you've toured with people, even if it's in the past, there's just something that really comes from sharing meals, you know, sharing beds, sharing toilets. And uh, you know, with the touring that we have done, it, it's never been to really make a name for ourselves, but just for that artistic development that comes of being musicians traveling together sharing those experiences and then the way you play together after having them and during having
0: them so flowers of hell will be a live entity which is going to be not putting any more new material out and then your other sort of combo will be doing new material
1: exactly and i mean i'm sure we'll still do some new songs in the flowers of hell but it's just I don't want to keep piling on the discography and be like you know, Game of Suzuki or The Fall and just or Billy Childish and just have these you know <laughs> dozens and dozens of albums out. Yeah. You know, so that someone new hears about it and then she's like, I don't know where to start. Fuck okay. it. You know, or they start with something that you're like, No, that's not the one to start with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. So look, if you could have said something to your like 16, 18 year old self starting out in in your sort of creative journey and and just life, is there anything that you'd have just kind of whispered in their ear, even if they ignored you? I just wondered if it was something you would have thought, yes, that would have been quite a good idea.
1: Oh, yeah, it would be, you're a musician. I never regarded myself as a musician at that point, right? I didn't know I was really, you know? So, you know, for me, and as I said, working with a day job in the music industry, when you're meeting people like David Bowie and in meetings about David Bowie, like that's the musician, not the thing you just did at home last night. How could you ever call yourself a musician? That's nothing like the people you're dealing with. Yes, Um, absolutely. It took Ivan Kral and Pete Kemper going like, no, dude, this stuff is good for me to go like, oh, really? (laughs) I thought I was just a record executive.
0: (laughs) Did it take a while for you to sort of, feel comfortable you know sort of in that in your role rather than just thinking am i just still a bit of a am i still faking it
1: oh definitely i mean i think with any band you always feel you're faking it like i know you've interviewed david gedge and you know i've gotten to know david gedge as a friend over the years and i remember the the night i met him and we were drinking back at a friend's place in la he's going look i just think i'm a fake i'm like no dude You're the real deal. You didn't see Monsters. Don't worry. You're real. And so I think it's the same for all artists. But especially when you're not earning a living off of it, then it's easier to feel like, oh, are we real or not? And I remember it was only when we were playing the tape that we finally did a drum kit with our name and logo, the flowers of hell on it. And Steve had and I were nudging each other, looking at the drum going, Yeah, we must be a real band now. Our name's on the drum kit. You know, it didn't matter that we'd been written about by Rolling Stone and had the thumb up from Lou, it was seeing the name on a drum kit. It's like, okay, we must be real now, right?
0: Yes, so, absolutely. So that's, you always have
1: that doubt about
0: it. That's, and what did your parents think of your, you know, when they've seen your sort of career, sort of the arc of your life? Have they been quite amazed and impressed?
1: I think my mom's quite amazed. My dad completely not phased by it. You know, I remember I did one of the earliest flyers of Hell Tracks when I was just doing as a studio project. I got it onto a CD that came out like with one and a quarter million copies of the daily star in the UK. I remember telling my dad about it. He was just like, Oh, that's nice. So it's like one and a quarter million copies dad. But I also real, it made me realize what unconditional love between a father and a son is. Cause I also realized like if I was calling him from some, indie jail cell busted for having weed he'd also have the same well okay you're my son i'll sort it out for you you know <laughs> and so that so yeah so he's not that impressed but i do when he has come out to see us like open for my bloody valentine and seen us playing to 2000 people or whatever yeah that's impressed him. when he sees people at the show Oh, he's like, oh yes, okay. This is connecting with people. Right, you know, it makes it more real than when it's just reviews or numbers or something.
0: Yes, absolutely. So after Mexico, how long will you be down there before sort of moving out again?
1: Uh, I'm rolling on shortly, you know, and so rolling on shortly, coming back to Toronto and actually picking up the stock of that first Flowers of Hell album. And uh, looking forward to, not looking forward to shipping those out, but I'll be glad to have people receiving them.
0: Yes, absolutely. I know there's going to be a lot of admin, isn't there? Indeed, there will be. And that, dear listener, is the end of the show. A massive thank you, as always, to the one and only Greg Jarvis from The Flowers of Hell, talking about his life in music and the, um, uh, the first album coming out again if you want to know any more information they do have a very good website the flowers of hell just go to it just google it it'll be fine and um yes keeping yes keep your eye on the ball because frankly mr shankley he's probably got a lot more projects coming out this though is the end of the show for another week um yes if you, this has been the c86 show david Easton. if you want to contact me for some nice and groovy reason you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show and also, these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Use in, Yes, indeed. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.